You can turn in your Bible to John's Gospel. Back in John's Gospel this morning, chapter 12, we'll look at verses 36 to 43. <clears throat> the text is printed in the bulletin for you also. <clears throat> um, as Christians, you might say that uh, our faith is very important to us. Maybe that's an understatement. But you might say our faith is very important to us. When we're saying that, really what we're saying is that actually Jesus is very important to us. Jesus himself, what we know about Jesus as he's revealed himself to us, that's very important to us. The truth of the gospel is very important to us. Nothing's more important to us than who Jesus is and what he's done, that he is God the Son, come in the flesh, come to save us from our sins through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, come to save us for a relationship with God the Father. Nothing's more important than that to us. If the gospel is not true, if that is not true, then our world pretty much collapses. <clears throat> when, when we see the truth of the gospel reinforced by various evidences, or when we see it produce effective results in people's lives as they're changed by the power of the gospel, then we're elated, right? It's an up day. Um, alternatively, it's very painful when someone attacks our faith, when someone mocks us for our faith. It, just, uh, it doesn't just feel like some detached idea is being attacked that we can sort of turn over um, objectively. It feels like I'm being attacked personally uh, when the idea of Jesus or the gospel or my faith is being attacked. I'm being attacked. That's how it feels. In fact, it can hurt just to see someone not believe in Jesus. You don't have to be attacking me for my faith, my, my faith in the gospel, but just when they don't believe in Jesus, it can be painful. What, what does that say about what I believe is of vital importance? I believe it's of vital importance. So what does it mean when somebody else thinks it's nothing? If I believe in Jesus Christ and I share what I believe with a friend, family member, a neighbor, but that person doesn't believe, they don't come to faith in Jesus, does that say something about me? Does that say that I'm just a dupe? Gullible? Does it threaten my understanding of the very nature of reality? Here's somebody who disagrees with me on what I think is fundamental to the nature of reality. Does it threaten that? Does it say something about the truth of the gospel or the power of the gospel, that it hasn't made a difference in this person's life so they've come to faith? Does it mean that Jesus himself is a failure, that he can't get people to believe in him? And then we start wrestling as believers with our own unbelief, with our own doubts. We get worried about what that means, the fact that I have doubts that I'm wrestling with, the fact that I have unbelief lurking in my own heart. So <clears throat> when Jesus is met with unbelief, whether we're talking about the unbelief of our friends or the unbelief that resides in us as Christians, when Jesus is met with unbelief, that can be difficult for us. The mere existence of unbelief can present believers with a crisis. And we often wish that Jesus would just make everybody believe, ourselves included. Just make me thoroughly, constantly believe that he would, we wish that he would provide absolute compelling proof so that everyone would be overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel, so that the, the threats that are posed by unbelief would just go away. 
God knows all about this struggle that is real for us, and He speaks to it in our passage. So as we're going to talk about this morning, um, let me pray, then we'll read the Scripture. Father, as we've already prayed, um, you do need to overcome some things that are going on inside of us for us to be able to hear and see you properly as you've revealed yourself to us in the gospel. We pray for that help now that you would send your spirit into our hearts and change us from the inside out, make us the kind of people who look to you and are able to say yes with faith. And in that uh, simple but miraculous process, We pray that you would um, engage your salvation to us, that you would apply it to us by your Holy Spirit so that it might reach the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So here's the big question. Why wouldn't everyone believe in God? Why wouldn't everybody trust in Jesus? That's the underlying question that John is addressing here with his summary. This is sort of a summary of what's like the first half of John's gospel. If you remember, we've talked about it a few times, um, that the first half of the John's gospel up through chapter 12 is known as the book of signs. This is the things that Jesus did and said. And then, um, and then the second half of the book, beginning here, sort of there's this transitional passage here, uh, the, the last half of the book, the book of glory. Uh, it's the things that Jesus did and, um, and taught in the upper room to his disciples. So here's a transition, here's a summary that John is giving us during this transition Jesus has come on the scene. This is what's happened so far. He's come on the scene. He's taught wonderful things. And he's worked wonderful signs. But they still do not believe in him. Why not? Why not? Surely that was an important question for John's original audience as well. The difficulty of unbelief uh, in their neighbors and even in themselves that would have been distressing to them as they communicated the gospel to the people that lived with them and around them, just as it's troubling for us for so many reasons. Why wouldn't everyone respond to God? Why wouldn't everyone respond to Jesus with faith, with belief, with trust? 
It's the most troubling question. And it always has been, almost since the very beginning of humanity. The scriptures make that clear. Why would Adam and Eve disbelieve God's goodness to them? Here they are in the garden. Everything is at their disposal. God has given them everything. But they disbelieve his goodness. That seed of doubt was planted. And it ended up wrecking wrecking and ruining their relationship with God. Right in the face of all God's generosity that just surrounded them, that was their whole life. God's generosity everywhere, right in the face of it. God was painted as miserly, stingy, withholding. His word was taken as untrustworthy, disbelieved. His reality was rejected, traded. And ever since then, God has come to people in spite of their unbelief. That's the default setting of our hearts, unbelief, disbelief. And, um, and so God comes to people in spite of our unbelief. When uh, we'll trace through the Old Testament history, when God had made all the arrangements to deliver his people from Egypt, Israel being enslaved in Egypt for centuries, he made all the arrangements, he showed his power to save them, through various signs and wonders, the great plagues. And his own people, who were witnesses to his power, they had seen his power. They had been delivered by his power. They still responded with unbelief. They complained and they grumbled and they disobeyed in the wilderness. But here is where the, the idea of unbelief, that question, why? Why do people not believe? It gets very disturbing. It gets very disturbing because it isn't just something that God is trying to overcome in order to establish, to reestablish a relationship of trust. Unbelief isn't just an obstacle to him, to our relationship with him. Unbelief is somehow a deliberate result of God's own activity. You think the questions that are posed by unbelief are disturbing, you're really going to be disturbed by some of the Bible's answers to the question of why is there such a thing as unbelief? <clears throat> when God was working the plagues in Egypt to bring the situation to critical, over and over and over again, he talked about hardening Pharaoh's heart. Hardening Pharaoh's heart. And after the exodus, after the rebellion in the wilderness, we hear, that unbelief persisted because God had not yet granted his people faith, granted them to believe. It says in Deuteronomy 29, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. So it sounds like the Lord is in control of who believes and who doesn't. Apparently all the great miracles that he performed didn't have the effect of winning Pharaoh to faith. That was deliberate. All the great miracles he performed didn't even have the effect of winning his own people to faith. 
The Lord could have arranged for Pharaoh to believe. The Lord could have arranged for Israel to believe if that was his main priority. But he acted in such a way that actually produced unbelief, and he went ahead and told everybody that that's what he did. How can you come to grips with that? But wait, there's more. Isaiah 6, which Bill read for our Old Testament reading, is a remarkable passage where Isaiah records his vision of the Lord, holy and glorious in the temple. I'm going to reread it because it's an amazing passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Remember that phrase, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. So Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. John says that in our passage this morning. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it. When he saw the Lord in his temple, he couldn't help but blurt out, oh no, I'm doomed because I, a sinner, have seen the king. But he was wrong. But he was wrong. He saw the Lord, but he was wrong about what that meant. The Lord had revealed himself to Isaiah truly. He saw the Lord in his glory, but Isaiah misinterpreted it as his condemnation. You could say God revealed himself to Isaiah, but Isaiah didn't believe And then he was forgiven, which showed that he was wrong. He wasn't doomed to die, a sinner in God's presence, because he'd seen the king. He was forgiven in the most terrifying way, burning coal from the altar, moving toward your mouth. And it changed him. So he volunteered to be sent as the Lord's messenger to carry the good news. What message, Lord? What shall I say? Go and say to this people, keep on hearing and do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The Lord made himself known, truly. He revealed himself in his glory in a way that has faith-inducing power in a way that has life-changing power. You can see that in Isaiah. Yet he has made this, ex- this purpose explicit, this, 
this hardening people in their unbelief. That's what the message of his revelation would do. So this is getting uncomfortable. What do you do with that? But wait, there's more. Now here comes Jesus. He's God in the flesh. You couldn't get a clearer picture of who God is, a clearer revelation. He's God made manifest as a human. God revealed to us truly the presence of God with us, the presence of God among us. He's made himself known, and no one recognized him. And he taught many wonderful things, and nobody understood it. He worked many signs and wonders, and his own people did not receive him. He called for people to believe in him. And then he hid from them. He says in our passage, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Come and follow me and stick with me. Stay close to me. And when he said these things, he departed and hid himself from, from them. What do you do with that? That word hid, he hid himself, is a form of the Greek word uh, crypto, which might sound familiar to English speakers. It's where we get words like encrypted or cryptic. Jesus is being cryptic. He's made himself known, but he's encrypting himself. He's obscuring himself. What do you do with that? Does he want them to know who he is? Or doesn't he? Does he want them to believe? Or does he want them to remain in their unbelief? Why does it seem like he hides himself from us? Why does it seem like he hides himself from our friends? We ask him to show himself, to make himself known, so that we can believe. Does he want to reveal himself? Or does he want to conceal himself? Shouldn't those things be mutually exclusive and he'd be one or the other? John addresses this crisis in a way that might not satisfy you. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So that's a quote from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this passage on the, the suffering servant. What's the Messiah going to be like? Well, totally unexpected. Nothing like what you'd expect. It's a prophecy that the Savior will be a suffering servant, unrecognizable and rejected by those who encounter him. That was something God had spoken through the prophet. That was something that God intended to fulfill. That the revelation of the Savior would be met with unbelief when people heard his teachings and saw the power of his signs. It was deliberate. God would use their unbelief to accomplish his purpose in salvation. And it says in verse 39 of our passage, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So when God reveals himself, it evokes the response of unbelief. 
He knows that. And he doesn't change the way that he acts. He comes deliberately, even though his coming evokes unbelief. Leslie Newbegin said, this is a quote at the front of the bulletin, it is not something marginal or accidental, but rather central and determinative for the whole witness of the Bible that God's actual revelation of himself must be met by rejection and contradiction. The word of the cross is and must be scandalous to the Jew and absurd to the Greek. And that's a hard word. It should be a hard word. <clears throat> I'm strongly tempted to say, don't worry, there's a perfectly good explanation for all of this. There's no cause for concern. But we're talking about God revealing himself to people who oppose him. There is absolutely cause for concern. This is not a matter to be taken lightly, so pay close attention. Isaiah said these things, John writes in in our passage in verse 41, Isaiah said these things, these very hard things for us to hear, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who? Not just God generically. Whose glory did Isaiah see? John is saying that Isaiah's prophecies refer to Jesus. That Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, saw his kind of glory, and he spoke of Jesus. Jesus was the Lord that Isaiah saw, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. High and lifted up. That normally conjures one sort of picture in our minds. Some great throne, some glorious vision, great and majestic. High and lifted up is language we're familiar with from John's gospel several places already. In fact, it's language you see in the passage just before this one. When is Jesus high and lifted up? What is the supreme revelation of his holiness? When is the hour that his glory can best be seen by all on earth? It's the cross. The moment of his sacrificial death for love's sake. It's, it's that paradoxical, simultaneously, it's the zenith, the full manifestation of his glory, which is also the nadir, right? The completion of his humiliating condescension. This is what Isaiah saw in his vision. Not just some majestic, in, in the world's terms, in the world's thoughts of what majestic means. To see the Lord high and lifted up, this is what Isaiah saw when he instinctively knew himself to be a dead man in the Lord's presence, yet surprisingly found himself forgiven and welcomed and changed and conscripted into the Lord's service. He saw a holiness in the Lord. He saw a glory in the Lord that even he could not comprehend even though he was looking right at it. It's a holiness and a glory that doesn't make any sense to people like us. And then Isaiah was told to go and proclaim it, even though it makes no sense to people like us. We assume that success for Isaiah would mean people coming to faith. 
This is your mission. This is your goal. This is your purpose, to have people to come to faith. But it was just as true that success for Isaiah would mean people not coming to faith, not believing. Because Isaiah's true mission, the real success, was faithfully proclaiming the Lord's particular glory, which happens to engender both responses, belief and unbelief. Isaiah saw that the revelation of the Lord, the unveiling, the disclosing, the making himself known, the revelation of the Lord is at the same time a veiling and a hiddenness because the Lord is holy and glorious in ways that are beyond us. So when Jesus comes, people are confounded. They're scratching their heads. The Jews are scandalized. The Greeks scoff, thinking it all folly. Rodney Whitaker says that the glory of the Lord revealed in Jesus has produced disbelief. God's revelation of his glory has caused blindness and hardness. And there's that other quote at the front of the bulletin by Origen that says that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. For Jesus, success could result in either melting or hardening. Success could result in either belief or unbelief because the true success for Jesus was faithfully bearing witness to who God is, faithfully revealing God's true glory, and that being primarily at the cross where he died for love. That ultimate thing makes no sense to us. Whether you believe it or not, that's who God is. When you look at Jesus, this is who God is, and this is what he came to do, and this is what he came to reveal about himself, knowing full well that when he did, it would polarize people against him, apart from a special work of his spirit to give them a new heart of faith. So what does that say about God? That he's true that he's faithful, that he's love. When you look at Jesus, it says that his glory is the cryptic, inscrutable way of the cross that cuts across the grain of the whole world. What does that say about you? You If your response to him is one of unbelief, it says that you've set yourself against the one who's true, against the one who's faithful against the one who is love, whose glory is the way of the cross, who has truly revealed himself to be good in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't deny his goodness. You just set yourself against it by your unbelief. But you're invited to have the other response. The other response, that of belief and faith and trust in Christ. Remember, John wrote his gospel, says in in sort of one of those summary passages right at the end, of the gospel, he wrote it so that you may believe. You may look at Jesus. You may listen to his word. You may see the wonders that he's wrought in order to bring about our salvation and see him as he is, true and glorious and holy and good and loving. You should look at Jesus that way. You should see his cross and say yes, even though you don't understand it all should resonate with you at some level, even if you can't explain it all. 
even if you have a hard time believing it all, you should look at Jesus and you should say, yes. This passage is a transition between the first and second parts of the gospel. Signs alone, John is saying, signs alone, the, the power, the mighty, wondrous deeds, the miracles alone didn't bring people to faith in Jesus. Jesus will now teach us. He'll now teach us what is necessary, and that's the Holy Spirit's coming and work in our lives. So if you do believe, it's an indication that the Holy Spirit has enabled you to hear something, to see something in the gospel that you can rest in, that you can trust in. If you do believe, then like Isaiah, you'll see his glory, you'll see Jesus' glory, and you'll speak of him, which is said in contrast to those whose faith is false here in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They didn't talk about their faith publicly so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Those who love the glory that comes from man The glory that only makes sense to this world, they fear what they might lose if they confess Christ. They fear what they might lose if they proclaim Christ publicly. What if we're attacked for our faith? What if we're mocked? What if life is made uncomfortable for us? What if we're not successful in converting all our hearers? What would that say about me? What might happen to me? Maybe we should expect resistance to the gospel, just like Jesus encountered himself and told us we would encounter, and the apostles told us we would encounter. Maybe we should expect that and remain faithful to our confession, even though it engenders that kind of response. So what if we're attacked for our faith? So what if we're mocked? So what if life is made uncomfortable for us? So what if we're unsuccessful in converting all our hearers, we'd be in good company at least because all these things were true of Jesus himself. He is who he is, and he will be who he will be, and he doesn't change himself to make himself believable to unbelievers. He reveals the glory of God that remains hidden. If you love this glory, the true cruciform glory of God, the revelation of God that cuts across the grain of the whole world. If you love this glory, if Jesus is the one who defines the very nature of reality for you, he himself, the center and nature and foundation of all reality, even though you yourself can't always believe it, then confess him, proclaim him, And leave it to God what kind of responses that gets. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do cry out with the saints, uh, with scriptures, with the Psalms, with many of your people. Why do you hide your face from us? Why is it so hard for us to see who you are and what you've done for us, to see you in your goodness and in your glory? And yet at the same time, we can open the pages, we can look at Jesus, we can look at your goodness 
square in the face. So we pray that you would do that work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would transform our minds and renew our hearts, give us new hearts to, to be able to see and understand you as you've presented yourself to us, truly. We pray that that revelation would change our lives, and we pray that it would change the lives of our friends. We pray for faith for ourselves and for our friends, but we pray for faithfulness in our bearing witness, our testimony to the gospel, to who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.